Today is the second Sunday and the final Sunday for now answering Bible questions. And many questions came to me, and I'm going to try to be brief uh, or briefer than last week. So if you have a follow-up, definitely seek me out, contact me, we'll talk more. And we answered some uh, questions in Sunday school, and we'll probably do this more, either in Sunday school, or maybe I'll do it by Facebook Live, which would also be on our website. So the first question today, and I'm going to answer three questions, and then we're going to sing two verses of a hymn, and then we will dismiss children to junior church after that. But first, do you believe the Bible teaches on generational curses or sins? Does the Bible teach generational curses and sins? Well, if you look up Exodus 34, verses 7 and following, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, it talks about the consequence of sin going to the third and fourth generation. The consequences of sin going to the third and fourth generation. And you can also see Leviticus 26, 39 about that. And I'm going to read those texts in a couple minutes, so just think about that. Then again, now this is interesting, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, it says that fathers should not be put to death for their children, nor children for their fathers. Fathers should not be put to death for their children, nor children for their fathers, thankfully. So it seems to me that children end up committing similar sins from their parents. It just happens, okay? If you're raised and your parent is always angry, dealing with anger and rage and wrath, it's likely you will have a learned behavior where you, where, where you just copy that, okay? If you're raised and your parent is always dealing with anxiety, you may have a learned behavior copying that. If you're raised and your parent always is gluttonous or overeating, things like that, or lazy, you know, or doesn't work, it's likely we copy that. It just naturally happens. It's a learned observation. But let me tell you, some of those things are organic, brain chemistry issues too. And another thing, and I was reading a book by a neurologist a few years ago that said that, you know, the choices we make in our life actually in real time, so to speak, can end up um, affecting our offspring, affecting our children. It, it, the, cho- the choices we make in life actually end up, if you're you know, before childbearing, you know, if you're younger, even though you're 30, if you're going to have a child at 35, they could be affected by the choices you make. It actually changes our DNA or the DNA of our offspring. A child observes certain sins in his parents and ends up copying them. But let's talk more about that because in Christ, we can be forgiven and actually that can actually be fixed in Christ. John Piper writes the following. He says, The generations to come who experience the penalty of the father's sins are those who hate God. We are not told how the father's sins become the children's sins. You hear that? We're not told how this happens. But what we are told is that when the father's sins are visited on the children, it is because the children are really sinful. Nobody is punished for sins they do not commit, okay? They, somehow, someway, they end up copying the same sins of their parents. And most of us have probably seen this happen maybe in our own lives or those close to us, okay? Okay. Um, Piper continues, that is the form in which the father's sins are visited. Therefore, all judgment is really deserved by the person who is punished. Because of God's grace, which is finally secured by Christ, the children can confess their own sins and the sins of their fathers and be forgiven and accepted by God. There's always forgiveness. Now notice Leviticus 26 verses 40 through 42. Now listen carefully to this. God says, but if they will confess their sins... And the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them. 
so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, God says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Notice how God says, confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Notice that. If you look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 5, Daniel prays to the Lord saying, we, plural pronoun, we have sinned. It wasn't Daniel that committed these sins, but he said, we, talking about Israel, have sinned. And I think that has a lot of application to us in the church across the United States today. So yes, I think there are generational sins, but I think they can be forgiven and prevented in Christ. Forgiven and prevented in Christ. However, I don't necessarily believe in generational curses, except that they would be the consequences of the sins. If you have follow-up, certainly ask me. Next question that came into me, where does evil come from? And that's a really good question, so we're just going to skip it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, where did evil come from? Get this, evil is a parasite. Evil is a parasite. It lives off of the good. Because of good, we know evil. In fact, C.S. Lewis has written about that as an apologetic of the gospel. We know evil because of good. We know right from wrong, and therefore we know what is good, and so we know evil. Evil has no existence on its own. It is really the absence of good. Evil, has, um, evil is not things like rocks and trees. It is a parasite that lives off of good. An example of uh, something similar is cold. We would think cold exists. However, this is incorrect. Cold does not exist. Cold is the absence of heat. Similarly, darkness does not exist. Darkness is the absence of light. Evil is the absence of good, or better, evil is the absence of God. God did not have to create evil, but rather only allow for the absence of good. God gave us free will, which allowed for the absence of good, which brought in evil. As finite human beings, we can never understand an infinite God. See Romans 11, 33-34. By the way, these are all written out, and you can grab them on your way out if you want. They're also on my blog. Uh, God did not create evil, but he did allow it. Evil exists because of free will. If we were not free, we would be worshiping God out of obligation. I like what uh, Tozer says about temptation. He says, when Satan comes around to taunt me about my past sins, I remind him that everything that had been charged against me came from him. And now everything I have, forgiveness and peace and freedom, I have freely received from my Lord Jesus Christ. And I like that. One more question before the, first, the second song. And this kind of is similar, and one of our youth asked this, and I'm really appreciative for that. Why didn't God just get rid of Satan? Why does he allow us to be tempted? And it's a similar question, and we ultimately cannot know for sure why God allows the things he allows. God is sovereign, and we know that. God is in control. God will get rid of Satan, by the way. We know Satan's future in Revelation 20. It seems that God is allowing Satan to do things for a time in order to build us up, okay? We oftentimes do not grow without hardship, without difficulty. And God will not tempt us, but he will allow us to be tested. He will allow us to be tested, okay? We face hard times. Look at, um, I'm going to read it to you, 2 Timothy 2.12. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, 
we will also reign with him. If we endure hardships and trials and, and tests and calamity, we will also reign with God. And about that, I'm going to quote um, Bobby Murphy. actually wrote this when he was teaching chapter 11 of the knowledge of the holy. He wrote, is it our goal that we will have a comfortable and trouble-free life? Sociologist Tony Campolo claims that the chief goal of most people is to get through life with as little discomfort and pain as possible. And that is probably true. It is also true, I think, that they project their desires onto God. You hear that? We project our desires onto God. They assume that God's chief goal for them is the same as theirs. They then become bitter and disillusioned when pain and discomfort come upon them. The tragedies and trials of life make them worse persons instead of better ones. Obviously, God's chief aim for us is not that we have a comfortable and trouble-free life. You hear that? God's chief aim for us is not that we have a comfortable and trouble-free life. So what is it then? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. This passage was part of a Christian hymn written in the first century. Notice what we who follow Jesus will do in verse 12. It says, we will reign with him. John also tells us what God's chief aim for us is. In Revelation 22, 1 through 5, this passage is about eternal life in heaven after the second coming of Jesus and our bodily resurrection. Verse 5 tells us what it is that we will do there. We will reign with God forever and ever. Listen, we go through troubles, sickness, pain, because God is preparing us to reign with him. So why did God not take care of Satan earlier? It is because he is preparing us to reign with him. And he allows Satan, he allows Satan, he got us still in control. He allows Satan to tempt us, to build us up, and preparing us to reign with him. And, you know, we can't always have all the answers. We want that, but that's the best that we can do. And an application about that, or an illustration, really. When Mercedes was learning to walk, or Abigail, and you could think about this with your own kids or kids that you've seen. You know, they fall down a lot, don't they? You know, they're learning to crawl, they're learning to roll over, and they scream bloody murder. murder. Mommy, why won't you get me? Why are you letting me go through this? You know, why, why, why? But listen, if we pick them up every time, if we don't let them learn on their own to roll over and to walk, and to crawl, then walk, to crawl, then to walk, they never will learn how to do it. If we always rescue the child, they'll never learn how to do it. If we don't take the training wheels off the bike, they'll never learn how to, to, to ride a two-wheel bike. They never will. And so God is kind of like that. He allows us to be built up through pain and even suffering. Bless you. And we can never know... We can never know what God's doing in trials and tribulations. And if you want to talk to me, some of you I'm sure have experienced a lot of trials and tribulations, uh, way more than I can understand. But I'd love to talk to you more about that. There's other things I can refer you to. But right now, I'm going to invite our praise team to come up, and they're going to lead uh, verses 1 and 2 of Higher Ground. beautiful hymn to lead into questions four and five today the next question they're all really good the next one and i'm reading it as it was written to me romans 8 it should be 29 through 30 talks about predestination is it possible if you dare that you could talk about those verses one of the next two sundays i've always had a hard time understanding the subject of election okay so there's predestination and election is a subcategory of 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 predestination okay and one thing i want to tell you right now um, it's in the New Testament. It's in the New Testament. Predestination is mentioned six times in the Bible. 
And that means that God foreordains or predetermines people or events to accomplish what he wills. It's there. So in one way, we have to look at it. We have to maybe study it. In the end, we have to say, Lord, you are Lord, and I am not. I surrender to you. It will all pan out in the end. Um, But this means... This is a broad concept in that what is foreordained can be any number of occurrences, such as the Romans and Jews killing Jesus. That is, that was foreordained. You can see Acts 4.28. Or the elect experiencing fullness of life. See 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Election is a subcategory of predestination in that what God foreordains specifically is to save or damn specific individuals. So let's look at the scripture and talk about it. Um, our clock on the back of the wall broke, so we're not worried about time today. Um, Romans eight twenty nine through 30. For those whom he foreknew, that's God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, that's God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see a whole process laid out there. And in summary, I have one of two views, depending on the day. Because I'm not really settled on this. I'll just be honest there. Either we could look at predestination and the elect as the corporate church. Okay. Oftentimes we make it individual. We think it's always talking about individuals. But it could clearly talk about the corporate church being predestined or elect. Okay. If you think about the Old Testament, Israel was chosen by God as a nation. Israel was elect by God as a nation. Israel was predestined in that way by God. That didn't mean they all made it to the promised land. They didn't, did they? It didn't mean they all made it to heaven, but they were as a nation predestined. So we could still say in a way that predestination is talking about the corporate church. There's another view, which, which some days I land on, which is it's clearly based off of foreknowledge. You see this passage. It says, for those God foreknew, he predestined. Okay, so it's quite possible God knew who would receive him given the opportunity, who would become Christians, and those who become Christians, followers of Jesus, are the predestined. But I want to talk about something else. Why do we need predestined? Why do we need chosen by God? Why do we need election? Look at John 6, 44. No one, this is Jesus, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's John 6, 44. That's Jesus talking about that. And then John 6, 65, Jesus says, and it says, And he, that's Jesus, was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 23, talks about humanity being dead in our sins. We are totally depraved. Okay, so the Bible affirms God's sovereignty, but also our free will. Listen, salvation starts with God, but we do have free will. Salvation is God's idea, not ours. We were dead in our sins, but God wants a relationship with us. And if we are totally depraved, how can we receive Christ? I believe Jesus is making it quite clear we can only receive him by the Holy Spirit's conviction, the Holy Spirit's prompting. And that's why predestination and these terms become such a big deal. We can't receive him except the Holy Spirit draws us to him. So it's quite, well, the simple answer to that is prevenient grace, and we'll get to that in a minute. So there are three major views on predestination. The first one, which I reject, 
would believe that God elects unconditionally and the elect are predestined. That means that the non-elect are essentially predestined to hell. I reject that. I can't, I can't buy into that, okay? And we can talk more about that later if you want. The second one is that God elects and predestines based on foreknowledge. God knew who would receive him given the opportunity, and they are predestined. And God knows who would receive him given the opportunity, so God sends the Holy Spirit's conviction, and they in their free will receive Christ. The third one, which I've already referenced, is election and predestination or corporate. This means that the elect are not individuals, but the corporate church. When it talks about election and predestination in the New Testament, it's talking about the church corporately, the church as a whole. Again, there are, those, are, those are the different views. Remember that technically God does not look to the future to see who will be saved. Everything is eternally present with God. God is omnipresent. So when we talk about foreknowledge in the Bible, that's, that's, that's anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic. That means that's ascribing to God human attributes. It's, it's, it's bringing God down to our level. Okay, so um, God knows who would receive him in their own free will, given the opportunity, and God makes sure they have the opportunity. The opportunity means that they will receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Remember, no one can receive Jesus without the Holy Spirit's conviction because we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our sins. So this is called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. This means the grace of the Lord coming beforehand, giving us the convicting power of the Holy Spirit so we can be saved. And, you know, sometimes I think it's quite possible that God's prevenient grace comes upon everyone who ever lived and everyone who ever will live so that everybody has a chance in their own free will to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, you may ask, what about the person who will never hear the gospel? Well, let me say, God can still give them the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to choose to reject the gospel. You know that there are numerous stories of Muslims in Muslim extremist countries having dreams about a Savior on a cross. It's amazing. Also, in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, God, God gives Cornelius divine revelation, convicting him, and then God sends Peter to follow that up with the gospel. Remember, God is sovereign. God knows all things. He knows the future. God is omnipresent. However, God loves us and has given us free will. We are dead in our sins without Jesus. So prevenient grace means that the Holy Spirit convicts people. They are sinners in need of a Savior. Those who receive Jesus as Lord and Savior are predestined and elect. I think that's pretty clear. Those who receive Jesus as Lord and Savior are the predestined and the elect. Meaning the church as a whole is the predestined and elect in the end. Anyways. So I don't know if that cleared anything up or just muddy the waters, but follow me up if you have any more questions about that. A similar question, a similar question. Oh, by the way, there's a good book called Chosen But Free by Norman Geisler, which would help with that. William Lane Craig has also written on that, and there's actual videos, YouTube videos of him teaching on that. Um, and, and I'd be glad to talk to you more about that. Uh, a similar question. I know God gives us free will to accept or reject Jesus. How does God bring the people that have rejected him to salvation that we pray for. Okay, if people are rejecting him, how does God bring them to salvation? We're praying for somebody, eventually they're saved. How does God bring them to salvation? And, and then a follow-up with that, if we pray for several years for an unsaved friend and they accept Jesus on their deathbed, 
They have nothing to lose at that point, and they miss the joy of being a Christian during their lifetime. So I believe the Holy Spirit is wooing people to come to know Him as Lord and Savior. I believe the Holy Spirit is always wooing people to Him, uh, bringing people to Him. Even right now with COVID-19, even with trials and tribulations, I believe the Holy Spirit is wooing people to Him. So as we pray... God factors in our prayers, and they do make a difference. We know that God desires all to be saved. See 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9. So when we are praying for somebody's salvation, that is a prayer that God wants. We are praying God's will. God wants people to be saved. However, it seems as though God does not override our free will. God wants people to freely, to freely choose him. So God factors that in somehow. And then, just to conclude this, message, this question, you are right. The person who receives Christ in their death, deathbed does miss out on a life with Christ. Uh, John 10.10 10 and John chapter 15 all talk about you know, Jesus giving us abundant life. However, if it's genuine, I believe you can still be saved even on your deathbed. A case in point of that is a thief on the cross. He's hanging with Jesus next to Jesus on the cross, and Jesus says, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So you still can be saved because God wants us to be saved. It's a free gift, and God wants that. I invite uh, Steve and Joyce and Janet and Elaine and Basha and Billy now for verses 3 through 4 of Higher Ground. Again, a beautiful hymn. We have a couple more questions now. Uh, questions six and seven, if you're um, following along. Which the first one relates to miracles, and I'm going to kind of lump a few questions in together here about miracles. We all believe in miracles. We pray to God. We ask for simple stuff, though. And even if it does not go okay, we act like it's okay. Uh, the question really is: Why do we not ask for the real miracles in which there really is no answer? And my simple answer is, I think we should pray for the real miracle. Why do we not pray for the real miracle? Probably, probably because we are too dependent on modern medicine. I think we should pray for the real miracle. However, give God the glory either way. If somebody's healed by an antibiotic, praise God. If somebody's healed by neuros, neuro, neurosurgery or something, praise God. But we ultimately should pray for the real miracle. Um, now, the, the question was, what about a child who has a brain tumor? Further, what if we have no reason to believe that God will answer us? And, and, and I think, in that case, we should still pray, but be honest with the Lord, asking him to increase our faith. Be honest with the Lord, asking him to increase our faith. And, you know, a, a case in point of that, I want to say is, you know, you know, Jesus was talking with a man whose son was dying, and Jesus said... And, and if you believe, you know, he can be healed. And the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. So we can come to the Lord in total honesty and say, you know, help my faith with this. But also remember, complete healing is when we go to heaven to be with the Lord. So some, you know, many times we're thinking, oh, Lord, why do you take so-and-so at this point? And they could be up in heaven thinking, how long, oh, Lord, how long until you bring them up to heaven to be with us? So, that is actually, those were two simple questions. And so now we have the joy and pleasure of Janet and Joyce with special music. Thank you, Joyce and Janet, for those beautiful songs that medley together. Beautiful songs. Yes. Uh. 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 
Mm -hmm. Where it talks about uh, changing his mind. Mm -hmm. Well, in Exodus, if you look at it, it's not... Well, I think the simple answer is anthropomorphic language. So whenever we see in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, we also see it in Abraham. You know, when Abraham intercedes talking to God about punishing Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham's brother Lot, or actually nephew Lot, was, was there in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham keeps saying, what if there's, you know, 50 righteous people, and he gets it down to 10 people. And so it would say God changed his mind. And what we're really seeing is anthropomorphic language, which means that it's ascribing to God human attributes. It's bringing God down to our level. The simple answer also is if God can change his mind, then he's not perfect to begin with. God is perfect to begin with, so he doesn't, he can't, he can't change his mind. And the other thing is that God's omnipresent, which means he's, he's present everywhere in space, but he's also present outside of time. Now, there was a heresy that started, and it's kind of fading off now, called open theism, which, which teaches that God doesn't know the future. Well, God clearly knows the future, so how can he change his mind? But it's, but also, and, and go ahead. Mm. Yeah, you're talking Exodus 32 around? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I believe that that's, that's anthropomorphic language. It's saying he changed his mind. It's bringing God down to uh, our level. It's ascribing to God human attributes. Just like we would change our mind, it's, it's saying that of God. God didn't literally change his mind. God knew what he was going to do to begin with. But God talked to Moses. You know, in the end of Deuteronomy, it says that uh, God tells Moses, I will send you a prophet like me. And people question, what does that mean, a prophet like Moses? Well, the best answer really is Moses and God talked like a face-to-face -face level. So God is having conversation with Moses um, on a human level. So I think that's the best answer with that, is saying he changed his mind, but God really did not change his mind. He already knew what he was going to do. But it could also be kind of about prayer, which is lumped together with this question. What about prayer, then? Does prayer change his mind? What about Moses? Moses is talking to God, and why talk to God if it doesn't change his mind? Well, it seems that prayer does change things. It changes things. It doesn't change God. And so I believe in God's omnipresence being outside of space and outside of time, present everywhere at the same time, present everywhere spatially at the same time and outside of time, God factors in our prayers. So God factored in that conversation Moses was going to have with him. But for scriptures, Numbers 23, 19 says that God does not change his mind, which would contradict at first glance Exodus 32, which Kevin brought up. And I'm glad you brought it up. Thank you. So that would look contradictory. Well, what happened then? And so the best answer is anthropomorphic language. There, there is different types of literature in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, there's metaphor, there's poetic language, there's allegory in Scripture. There's When Jesus said, cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin, generally it's accepted. You don't cut off your hand, literally. Cut off what's causing you to sin. It's, it's a metaphoric type of um, language. And then there's anthropomorphic language, ascribing to God human attributes. Um, also, Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 says that God does not change. God does not change. Malachi 3.6 also says that he does not change. So those are passages showing that he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change. He doesn't lie. He can't tell a lie. But does prayer change his mind? 
Prayer does not change his mind, but prayer does change things. And you can look at Luke 18.1. Luke 18.1 is about prayer. 1 John 5, 14-15 is about prayer. James chapter 5, I don't have that in the notes, but that's another one. James chapter 5 says the effective prayer of a righteous person is, is the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So how does that work? I believe God in his omnipresence factored in our prayers in eternity past. He factored in our prayers. Prayer does change things, but God is perfect. So prayer does not change his mind. Again, if he, were, if, 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 he, if he had to change his mind, then he wouldn't have been perfect to begin with. So to change, and I have that written, to change God's mind, he would have had to be imperfect to begin with. And also those would be two scriptures contradicting each other. So when you look at two scriptures that appear to contradict, you have to do more cross-reference, more correlation. Scripture does not contradict itself. So then you start diving into it in what would be called inductive Bible study, um, IBS, inductive Bible study, and hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science or the, the, well, science would be of interpretation. How do we interpret and that's when you look at anthropomorphic language so i don't know if that totally i'm glad you asked that kevin any follow-ups there yeah because you have to look at the scripture so it's god coming down to our level god came down to abraham's level god came down to um to moses's level right there i thought you were going to get into exodus 3 which is another thing which we could talk about too but um God coming down to our level. Prayer does work. Remember that. All throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we see the effectiveness of prayer. We see that God wants us to come to him. God wants us to pray for the lost. And uh, so how does that work? God is omnipresent. He knew before anybody was born, he knew what we were going to pray for. He knew, and he factored that in in some way. Faith. What really is faith? We say we have faith in God and trust Him, but when we pray, so often, we spell everything out, don't we? We do do that, don't we? We pray and say, oh Lord, make this come about this way. I want you to do this, this, and this. And by the way, it's okay to pray our heart's desire to the Lord, but what really is faith? Why don't we really trust Him? Do we trust that He will take care of us even if? Can we trust Him with His will for our life? And these questions I'm lumping together. Faith means to trust in something or someone, to trust in someone or something. You all right now are having faith because you're sitting in these pews and you're trusting them to hold you up. Okay? If you didn't trust them, you wouldn't have sat down. You have faith in those pews. Now, in a biblical way, biblical faith is trusting in the unseen. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 talks about that, trusting in the unseen. The person who asked the question is right. That we should just pray and say that we surrender to his will. We, we, we pray. We pray with petition. We say, Lord, please help me in this way. And at the end of the day, we say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the best testimony I have about that is the wonderful hymn, by far one of my favorites, It Is Well With My Soul, which is written after the hymn writer um, lost multiple children, I believe multiple daughters, maybe three, I think, in a shipwreck on the Atlantic. And the wife gets over to Europe and sends a message by telegram, I think it was, and says, I alone survive. What do you want me to do? So he went up by ship over to her, and when the ship passed the spot where his daughters drowned, he wrote this beautiful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. So we should... And by the way, be honest with the Lord. Say, my faith is weak. 
Help me with my faith. And also just pray, but then surrender to his will to be done. And I think I'm going to answer one more question before the next hymn, which I am. This one's a simpler one. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Passion Translation? Uh, don't buy it. <laughs> um, I didn't know anything about the Passion Translation until this was asked. And then it was funny because Dr. Radelnik, who does an open line program on Moody Radio, was then asked about it just last week, and he didn't know anything about it either. But I'm going to summarize some things here. Any good translation should be worked through by multiple translators, okay? Not one person. The New Living Translation was translated by one person, but later a group of translators came in and examined it, okay? The Passion Translation seems to include... Uh, um, a type of theology called the New Apostolic Reformation. And the New Apostolic Reformation is an unbiblical religious movement that emphasizes experience over Scripture, experience over Scripture, mysticism over doctrine, and modern-day apostles over the plain text of the Bible. And, and so this translation, that guy who translated it, translated passages in order to fit what he wanted it to say, in order to fit that theology. Now, the New World Translation is similar. The Jehovah's Witness translated the Bible, the New World Translation, in order to fit what they wanted it to say. We're not to do that. We're to, translate the, we're to interpret the Bible and translate it based off what the original manuscripts read. There's many good translations. Um, the New American Standard Bible is by far the literal, most literal. The New American Standard Bible, called the NASB, by far the most literal. But it is a little bit harder to read because of that. The New King James Version is good. The ESV, the English Standard Version, is okay. The Holman Christian Standard Bible. The NIV, depending on your reading level. The New Living Translation is probably the best for children or those that don't read much. Um, there, there are many good translations, so don't go after the Passion Translation. Um, at this point, we're gonna, I'm going to call Steve and Joyce and Janet up, and we're going to sing Amazing Grace. So, as we deal with these questions, we got two more questions which we're going to answer as we wrap this up. And... I want to say, you know, some of these questions are hard to answer, so it's nice if you have like a small group format. And so if you're interested in some of this, maybe we'd have kind of a Sunday school class where my Sunday school class can talk about them and have more discussion. Uh, as I said, at my last church for a couple years, I had a Sunday night and then a Wednesday night small group, and that's all we did. And it's nice because in a small group, we can actually get into our Bibles, and maybe I can even look up um, the Greek language or the Hebrew and, and look at some of my other sources So we as we tackle these. You know, this next question, oh, by the way, we're going to get back to the James Sermon series in two weeks, and I'm going to wrap that up in a few weeks. Next week, I'm going to talk about our hope. It's going to be more a message geared to encourage us, uh, just a purely encouraging message based on the love of God, based on 1 John chapter 3, and about being adopted into God's family. So that's the plans for the next coming weeks. So this question, it was worded, what the heck is Paul talking about in 2 Corinthians 12 with out-of-body experiences in the third heaven? And this is a really cool, uh, cool passage, by the way. Their Hebrew people talked about three heavens. In Hebrew language, they talked about three heavens. Other cultures historically talked about multiple heavens, even eight, nine, and ten heavens. But to the Hebrew people, one heaven was where the birds fly, the atmosphere. The second heaven was the universe, you know, Star Trek stuff, Star Wars, if you're that type of person. You know, the third heaven... 
the second heaven was the universe. And the third heaven to the Hebrew people was where God resided. So when Paul talked about being taken up to the third heaven, he's talking about going to the heaven where God resides, the intermediate heaven where we go when we die. Let's read the passage. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. And he writes, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, He's talking about himself. He says, 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. So Paul is talking about himself. 14 years previously, he's taken up to the third heaven. He doesn't really know whether he was in the body or out of the body. And then he says, and I know such a man. I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. So Paul calls it paradise. And he says, and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. So Paul's taken up to heaven, and he hears hears inexpressible things. And get this, he's not allowed to repeat them. So I strongly believe, and most seem to believe, that Paul is talking about dying and being taken up to heaven, or in some state, God took him to heaven without him dying. But notice, in contrast to the near-death experiences, which you may hear about on television, Paul is told not to share about his experience. He is told not to share about his experience. I am skeptical of a lot of the near-death experiences which we read out in, about in books. There was one where they proved later on that, it, that, that the guy made it up. There was another one which I read which was interesting in and of itself. But Paul is told not to talk about it. And he says that things he saw were inexpressible. And I wonder if this happened in Acts 14, 19. In Acts 14, 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, most people would not live through a stoning. They stoned a person. They picked up rocks. There's lots of rocks in Israel, if you don't know. They picked up rocks, and they essentially buried you in stones. And they dragged him out of the city, left him for dead. So maybe he died there and went up to the third heaven, or maybe he was, in, maybe he was just near death, and, 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 he, and he goes up to heaven. I'm not really sure. And, and we don't even know that's when that happened. But what we do know is Paul was taken up to heaven, and Paul says... It was paradise. He heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. And you know what? Later on in Philippians 1, Paul desired to go back to heaven. Paul Paul had been there, and he wanted to go back. He... In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So we know heaven is going to be a marvelous place, an awesome place, a place that we can look forward to for our eternity. I got another question, which I, um, it was kind of a, a more of a last minute one, and it, I don't even know if it was a serious question, but I'm going to tackle it, and then we'll close with the final song. What an interracial marriage. This would probably be a bigger deal 60 or 70 years ago, maybe 80 years ago. I would really, 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 really hope we would all understand that there is nothing whatsoever, nothing wrong with interracial marriage. 
Nothing wrong with interracial marriage. According to the Bible, interracial marriages are totally fine and biblical. We learn in Numbers that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. That's Numbers chapter 12 verse 1. So Moses was in an interracial marriage. We also know based off of Galatians 3.28 that there is no longer Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And guess what? We are all created in the image of God. So there is, it would be sinful to think an interracial marriage was sinful, but it is not. There's nothing wrong and everything right and okay with an interracial marriage. In fact, Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 are all about how all the cultures are united in Christ in heaven. We see in Revelation 7, 9 through 11, that in heaven there are many tribes, tongues, and nationalities worshiping the Lord. What is wrong is marriage between a non-believer and a believer. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, what they, that's called unequally yoked. Now, one reason I took this question is because it is important for the time, right now, the time we're dealing with. As Christians, we are redeemed, but we are still battling a sin nature, and part of that sin nature is racism. Any racism we have within our own heart, we need to own up to and repent of it. And I think we all probably um, are lying to ourselves if we think we never have it. We need to ask the Lord to search our heart and repent of it. It happens. Repent of it. We're battling a sin nature. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us to examine ourselves. You know, your family, I'm going to branch off into this to a side topic of racism. Your family may not have owned slaves or been part of racism in the past. But if you're talking with someone who has been part of racism, you can still say, we as a country have sins in our past. We as a church across the United States have sins in our past. One thing that we often do is we make excuses to make us feel better. We say things like, all cultures own slaves. Or there was slavery in the Bible. Or most slaves had it good. And by the way, I've heard all of those things. But that's no excuse. That's no excuse for the sins of the past. And to make matters worse, the church across the United States did poor hermeneutics, that means poor interpretation of the Bible, to make the Bible justify their sin. We still do that today, by the way. I mean, people say, the Bible is okay with my pornography. Yeah, who's your theologian, Hugh Hefner? No. You know, we still try to use the Bible to justify our sin. And that's what they did. So even if you did not sin in that way, we can still acknowledge it's a sin in our past, it's a sin in the church, it's a, black, it's a stain on the United States of America. The Bible never, ever endorses racism or slavery. In fact, it seems that in the first few hundred years of Christianity, get this, in the first few hundred years of, of Christianity, slavery as an institution fell apart, probably because of Christianity. If you look at the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, they were supposed to free their slaves after the sixth year, Exodus 21, verse 2, the year of Sabbath. We have biases, and we say things to make us feel better. An example of that is called the, um, the fundamental attribution error. Fundamental attribution error. That's in which an observer ascribes to a subject fundamental or inerrant deficiencies rather than to situational context that might also be at work. Uh, a case in point about that is when a child, a two-year-old a few years ago, died by an alligator attack at Disney World. Tragedy. And at first, everybody had sympathy for the situation. And then, and then people started saying, those parents were wrong. 
Those parents messed up. And maybe they did, but we do that to make us feel better. If we can find that somebody was at fault, somebody dies in a car accident, we feel bad for them. But then we find out where they were drinking and driving. We, it makes us feel better because it's not just a senseless, violent act or, a, you know, or just a, a wrong place, wrong time type circumstance. And we do the same thing with slavery in the United States. I hope and believe and pray that we would all believe it was totally wrong. And what was wrong on top of that was 1865 to 1964 and what happened in the next hundred years and still goes on to today. It was, a, it was terrible. It was sinful. Acknowledge it. Don't make excuses. Don't say things like most slaves had it good. <laughs> Are you an idiot? I mean, sorry. I mean, really? They're still slaves. And most did not have it good. It was illegal to even teach them to read. It was terrible. It's a sin in our past. Own up to it. And if you have any racist thoughts within you, and we all are battling a sin nature, own up to that too. Repent of it. We need to repent of that. We have to watch for these tendencies, which we do to make us feel better inside. It may not be racism. It may be a lack of sympathy for an issue, such as the child that died uh, by the alligator attack. You know, there's testimonies of the father trying to pry the child, the baby, his two-year-old, out of the jaws of the alligator. We need to repent of bad thoughts about that, too. Those, ch- those parents were at fault. Have sympathy and compassion for the parents rather than thinking. Because sin starts in the head. We can gossip in our head. And believe me, I'm not preaching at you anything I want preached to myself. There are many times I have to repent and say, Oh, Lord, forgive me for that terrible thought. We just have to acknowledge it. If you read the Old Testament prophets, we see where they would repent to God saying, we have sinned. I know I already said that. I'm repeating again. They said, we, even though they personally did not commit the sins. See Daniel 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 5. The slavery and racism in the United States history was a sin in our past. We need to quit making excuses to make us feel better. Just say, I acknowledge it was sinful. It was wrong. Let's try to move on. Let's try to move on. We can't move on when we make excuses and say stupid things like most slaves had it good or there's slavery in the Bible. Guess what? There's atheism in the Bible too. You think the Bible is endorsing atheism? No. It is interesting that theism is in their word for not belief in God. But no. Acknowledge it. Look at Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way, in the everlasting way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we, all of us, would humbly say that same thing. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Lord God, convict us of any sin. Not just what I just talked about. A lack of loving our brother and sister. Lustful thoughts. Gossip that might even start in the head. Negative thoughts. Search us and convict us, Holy Spirit, so we repent. Get down into our pride. We all have it, Lord. Teach us humility. And Lord God, as we talk about these things, may we look forward to heaven where there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering. We look forward to a way when we know you are going to make all things new. You are going to make things right. You are going to restore things. We look forward to that, Lord. Lord God, we know for us who are in Christ, we have a fuller life in you, abundant life in you, complete life in you, and eternal life in you. 
If anyone is listening right now who does not know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day to repent, confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior, to believe in you as the one and only Savior, to trust in you and commit to you. And Lord God, help us all committing our lives to you every day, walking with you, living John 15. You are the vine, we are the branches. We must be connected to you. I mean, we must walk by the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says, and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Lord God, I pray that we truly do walk by the Spirit, that we truly do have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And may we leave this place walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite Steve and Joyce and Janet for the closing song and prayer.